Let me invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. And we are continuing our sermon series asking the question, who is Jesus? And uh, we're going to be moving through different sections this semester through the book of Matthew. In RUF, we put an emphasis uh, on preaching. Uh, That preaching is a pivotal part of the Christian life. It's not the only thing in the Christian life, but it is God's central means by which we grow. And why is that? Because in preaching, when it is from God's word, as Heidelberg says, it is God's word. Or excuse me, as the uh, uh, Helvetic Catechism says, it is God's word. It is God speaking to us. So that is why we value the preaching of his word. So Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're asking that in this time, as we look at the book, we would not merely see words on a page, but that we would hear the divine voice within a human voice. Father, we know that were we to come up with our own message and merely rely on human voice, we would never find the way of salvation. But in your mercy, you have ordained that you would speak through fallible, sinful men, but from your infallible, perfect word. Holy Spirit, help us to listen. Help us to know that you are speaking, but are we listening? Enable us to do so, and as we do so, that we would see Christ and who He is for us. We ask all this in His name. Amen. Maybe my biology majors uh, will correct my pronunciation of this, but the female fodderus firefly, uh, the female fodderus is a killer. She preys on the male uh, fontanus firefly. The fontanous males avoid contact with the female fodderus, but the females have found a certain weakness in the males. 
They have developed a special blinking courtship code by which members of the male species tell one another that they're ready to mate. So by mimicking the flashing signals of her prey, the females are able to feast on the bodies of the males, those who who thought it was a courtship program. It's very interesting because isn't that what temptation does to us? It blinks at us. It flatters us. It pretends to be something true and, and good, but it's dangerous and it'll kill you. We see here in Matthew 4 that Jesus is the one who must be tempted. And as we will see as we unpack his word, he does not fail. He's not given to the, as it were, the, the fodderous firefly. Even though all of humanity throughout all of time, there has never not been someone besides Jesus Christ who is upheld under Satan's temptation. All of us have fallen. All of us have sinned. All of us have eventually given in, but not him. And he is the one, because of this, he is the one who can save us. We're going to see who Jesus is here, that he underwent the temptation of temptations. And then we're going to unpack what these temptations were. So go back to verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Um, let me do this real quick. Y'all pardon this. I'm going to switch mics with Jake. Um, thank you, sir. Boom. Yes. We see that Jesus is led up by the Holy Spirit. What's interesting is that in the book of Chronicles, Chronicles is the last book in the Hebrew Old Testament in its original ordering. And in the Hebrew Old Testament, the book of Chronicles, it was written during the period of exile. Remember the people of of Israel, or excuse me, post-exile, the people of Israel had been carried off into exile in Babylon and they had began to return and they were wondering, what is the hope of these people to be saved? And it's interesting that the book of Chronicles is really, remember, it's just one book. One and two were separated to help us out, but it's just one book. But the book of Chronicles opens up starting to, starting to talk about Adam. Adam being the first man, Adam being the one who reminds us of God's Creation And no doubt, when it, wrote, when it speaks about Adam, it wants the people of Israel to long for new creation. It wants the people of Israel to long for God to make all things right. And it begins with Adam. And interestingly, in the book of Chronicles, it paints a very good picture of David. We know David had some pretty massive sins, but it leaves the one of Bathsheba out Not to hide what he's done, but the reason being is that it wants to paint a good picture of David. Here's why. Because the author of Chronicles wants the people of Israel to look forward to a greater David to come. A king who would really bring victory. A king who would bring the kingdom. And at the very end of the book of Chronicles, it ends with a verb. And this verb that says, let him go up in the English, it is a verb that is used for holy war. Why does all that matter? Why do I talk to you about the book of Chronicles? Here's why. Because the people of Israel, at the very end of essentially the uh, historical Old Testament period, as they would wait 400 years for 
for this divine warrior king, they would long for someone to bring new creation. They would long for someone to be the true king. They would long for someone to, be, to make things right so that God's people could be brought in. How does that connect to the book of Matthew? Here's how. Look at chapter 1, actually. Flip back. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. When it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, it literally means the book of Genesis. Think about new creation. That what Matthew is trying to show us here is that Jesus is not just another interesting person. He is the one who's going to bring the new creation. But he also connects him with David saying, look, he is the true and greater David who is going to rule over God's enemies and he's going to conquer them at last. See, what Matthew is doing is that Matthew is showing you all throughout his book, he is showing you that Jesus has come to make all the wrong things right. That's why he has to be tempted. He has to be tempted so that as his people failed, he might succeed. So that as the divine warrior king, he might bring us victory. So the question really is this. It's not do you believe that this happened. The question is how do you respond to it? The question that you and I are faced with this morning is this. In this war, whose side are you on? Are you Jesus' enemy? Or are you Jesus' friend? He is the divine warrior king. And it's interesting that after the baptism, as Jason preached last week, he comes out of the waters and he is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. I love one of my good friends, Ben Glad, says, Now that Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit and equipped to rule, he will head out to battle. And that's what he's doing. It's interesting that when in Scripture the Holy Spirit is said to come upon someone in Scripture, it was seen that this was going to happen right before God would bring a major redemptive moment. Think about the book of Judges. God's Spirit would come upon one of the judges and they would lead the people into a victory. No doubt this is what the original audience would have thought. That something big is about to happen with Jesus. There's also something, another, another thing that's amazing as we set the stage here for Jesus' temptation is this. Is that Jesus has come to undo what the people of Israel failed at. You remember the people of Israel when they were delivered from Exodus. I mean, excuse me, not from Exodus, the book, from Egypt. They're delivered from Egypt. And what did they have to cross through? They had to cross through waters, the Red Sea. And then what happens after they cross through the waters? They go into a wilderness. What happened in chapter 3 that Jason preached on last week? Jesus went into what? Waters. And now where is he going? Wilderness. Why? Is this just random? No. Here's what's happening. Jesus is the greater Israel. Jesus has come to do what his people failed at doing. And he has to go through it if he is going to be our Savior. He has to be tempted as they were, but yet he cannot fall. He cannot sin if he's going to bring us the ultimate victory. It's also amazing that you notice that after Jesus is baptized and it says that during his baptism that there was a voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And then chapter three, verse 18 says he he developed a huge Twitter following and Instagram uh, fans and he went out and he was an influencer, right? 
That's probably what we would do if we really wanted to change the world. We would go out and say, how can I build my platform? We love platforms. Jesus goes into exile. Jesus, like the other prophets that God would use, he's going to a place of solitude so that God might prepare him. You see, what we need to remember is this, is that just because you have gifts does not mean that you are mature in the Christian faith. Godliness is more important than giftedness. And one of the things that God needs to do is even though you might have some great natural gifts and gifts that he has given you, but if God is going to use you, he needs to clean you off. Not that Jesus needed cleansing, but it does show us that we are not above our master who had to go into the wilderness to be tempted. And he goes into the wilderness. You see that there in verse one of chapter four, he goes into the wilderness. How different From Adam, when Adam was in a nice garden, Mark will give this picture where Mark will say that Jesus was in the wilderness amongst the beasts. And it's purposely trying to to show you how different it was for Jesus. He was in the wilderness with the beasts when Adam was in the garden with the animals. He goes into the wilderness. The wilderness would have been east of the Jordan River, north of Jericho. And it's interesting that in wilderness, in God's story of redemption he used the wilderness to prepare his people to be a nation of priests and don't you see jesus being prepared to be the ultimate priest wilderness was a place where there was chaos wilderness was a place where it was opposed to flourishing unsuitable for life Wildernesses would have been known for being a god forsaken place and it often would have been associated with evil spirits Why does Jesus go into a wilderness? I think one of the reasons why we can see that is because our hearts are just like a wilderness, are they not? We don't have any spiritual life. We live under a curse. Our hearts are chaotic. We are God forsaken because we have forsaken God and we are dominated by the devil without Christ. Jesus does not come to us when we are his friends and when it was easy. He comes to us when we were his foes and when it was chaotic. He comes into the wilderness because it was in the wilderness that Israel failed and he must undo their wrongs. It says there, why why did he go into the wilderness? It says he went there to be tempted by the devil. What it means is this, that Jesus would have been enticed to trade God for something else. You see, why must he be tempted? Why can't he just have the easy route? Here's the thing. If he is going to save a multitude of people from their sins, then he must face a multitude of temptations to sin. If Jesus is going to save a multitude of people from their sins, then he must face a multitude of temptations to sin. But he must not fail. Maybe you're asking the question this. Well, isn't he God? Can he really be tempted? I think two weeks ago I preached on this. Whenever we say that Jesus is uh, more than a man, he's a superhuman, that's functional heresy. Uh, Don't do that. Whenever we say, well, that's Jesus, that's different. That's not good biblical theology. 
Jesus is God in the flesh. But everything that makes man a man, Jesus had to take. He is without sin, but he must be tempted as we are, yet without sin in order to be our Savior. That's actually what Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 will talk about. Maybe this doesn't really make sense. We'll put it this way. Uh, maybe if you like to go work, work out and you do squats and you get up under the squat rack. And let's say it's max day for you. And you're going to get under the squat rack and you're going to max out. And you put some 45-pound plates on and, and you squat down. You do it. It's pretty easy. You put it back. You put more 45-pound plates on. You squat down. Come back up. It's a little bit harder, but you can still do it. Put, the, put it back on the rack, more 45 plates on. Now you're at 315. Legs start to hurt a little bit. You realize that gravity is real, right? Maybe you go down, you squat, you get it back up, and you say, that felt pretty good, and you go to 405 because you're really feeling it that day. And then eventually you'll get buried. Now, I remember seeing a man squat over 700 pounds. I remember watching him rep it out for 10 reps. It was amazing. But eventually, if you keep putting on 45-pound plates, he will fall. Let me ask you the question. Let's say you can only squat 135 and this other guy can squat 705. Who feels the weight the most? He does. Because it kept piling on him, kept piling on him, but yet he still stands. All of us have fallen under the weight of temptation eventually, but Jesus never did. It kept piling on more and more and more and more and more. The devil gave him everything he could, and he never fell. If something, Jesus knows more about temptation than we do. That's how he can be our savior. Jesus must be tempted totally if he is going to save us truly. He did not have a sinful nature, but he was really tempted But yet he withstood. Look at verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, it says he was hungry. Why is he fasting? He's fasting because, as one person says, he needs to get at his utter weakness to really be tested. But why does he do it for 40 days and 40 nights? Is that also, is that just random? Here's the thing the more you get to know Jesus, you will know he is nothing random, he never does anything by accident. Maybe if you put your Old Testament hats on, you think back and you say, what was the number 40 significant for? Who else went through something for a capacity of 40 something? The people of Israel. 40 years in the wilderness. They stayed 40 years in the wilderness because they had sinned. They had given over themselves to the temptation and they sinned. And so Jesus is going to fast in the wilderness while being tempted for 40 days and 40 nights so that he can undo what had been broken. When it says at the very end of verse 2, don't skip over this too fast. When it says he was hungry, it means it. It does not mean that he just wanted a little snack. He was famished. He had truly hunger pangs. You see, what one study says that most human bodies cannot hold up even just under 40 days of fasting. No doubt he would have been dizzy. He would have been dehydrated. He would have had very little energy. 
You see, oftentimes when we're the slightest bit hungry and we're the slightest bit tired, isn't that often when we uh, have outbursts of anger? Jesus gets to, as it were, almost the weakest point outside of the cross. But yet he's still the divine warrior king. Verse 3 says, and the tempter came to him. The devil, make no mistake, my friends, there is a real personal devil. Satan is one of the fallen angels and he stands at the forefront of all the rebellious angels. And he has one goal for you. His one goal for you and me is this, is that you would forsake God. And if in that moment he cannot get you to forsake God, even though eventually you will. But if even in that moment he cannot get you to forsake God, then he will convince you that God has forsaken you. He wants to tempt you to sin and he wants to tempt you to not believe that God is for you. No doubt this is exactly what he is doing here with Jesus. He is giving him everything he has. And I love what one scholar says that in rabbinic literature, Satan is depicted as the head of a kingdom opposed to God. And Satan's kingdom tries to frustrate God's saving purposes by leading people into sin and accusing them before God. Satan knows who Jesus is. You better believe that he is pulling everything out of his playbook to get him to sin. Because if Jesus sins once, there is no salvation. This is our only hope. But Jesus knows that he must defeat the evil one. Jesus knows that this is the war of all wars. It makes you wonder, maybe just hypothetically, has heaven and hell just shut down for these 40 days to observe this? If we can just think about an imaginative scenario. Think about the focus that would be here. Maybe it'd be something like a, a small Texas town on a Friday night in the fall when all the business, businesses would shut down to go observe their team play. Would they win or would they lose? This was the matchup. Jesus must win. Satan has never lost up to this point. After he sinned against the Lord and he was cast out of heaven, he, he came into the earth and he tempted every single person of mankind and he was undefeated. What's going to happen here? You can almost imagine this David versus Goliath moment, can't you? And just like David and Goliath, here's what would happen. As Goliath was the representative of the Philistines and David was the representative of Israel, what would happen in this battle would determine the reality for the people. So you see that when Jesus wins, he does not win just for himself. He wins for his people. Amen? And he must win. You see, Jesus must really, truly be tempted if we are to really and truly be saved. Let's look at these temptations. Look at verse four. Or excuse me, verse three. Tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. I love that we see here that Satan uses words. He uses words to tempt us because God uses words to bring us to life. And the words that Satan uses, remember he begins here with if, if 
you are the Son of God. Satan loves to use if when God uses is. God, the Father, told Jesus, you are my Son. Satan says, if you are the Son. Where God puts a period, Satan loves to put a question mark. We have to remember this. As I often tell my students, nothing good ever happens when you go to what-if land. Nothing good ever happens. But that's where Satan wants to tempt us. He wants to bring us to what-if land. He wants to bring Jesus to what-if land. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Notice that he doesn't say a loaf of bread. But he, can, he tries to tempt Jesus with a buffet. What's really happening here is this. He is tempting Jesus to see that maybe his very existence depends more on God's gifts than God himself. On creation rather than the creator. Does our existence depend more on physical sustenance or on spiritual sustenance? Does our existence depend more on the bread of earth or the bread of heaven? We all face this temptation. We often think that food and drink is actually what we have to live on in, in order to live, or we have to have money, or we, we even we have to have those, all those entertainment subscriptions. We have to have those clothes. We have to have those friends. We have to be attractive. We have to be the smartest person in the room. We literally, we have to have those likes. Maybe the likes are just on social media or the likes in person. And no, this is not just for teenage and college students. We, after college, just do a better job of masking it. You see, we want to be liked because we better be liked in this world. We better be liked in our jobs. We better be liked in our schools and our friend groups amongst our respected peers. And we want to be liked by them more than by God. And we'll sacrifice the truth of God to get those likes. But it is interesting that God's first command in Exodus 20, he says, you shall have no other gods besides me. John Calvin has said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. We love to create gods of our own making. We've traded the true God for not gods. See, let me give you an example. Why is this a problem? Why is this so offensive? You know, once again, the show Undercover Boss, I know it's an overused illustration, but it's a different illustration. In the show Undercover Boss, when the CEO, he or she, acts like they are just the lowest person on the totem pole, you know, they, they go through the regular job. And sometimes you'll see in these episodes that, that these other employees will be really harsh towards the actual CEO. And sometimes at the very end, that person will get fired. You see, it's not merely that sin is a problem to us. Sin is a problem to our master. Unfortunately, today, often we hear in modern preaching, if we ever do talk about sin, but we often hear when we talk about sin, and often I'm, I'm part of the problem of this, we talk about sin primarily as just what it does to us rather than what it does to God. The problem with sin is that sin is against him. It does hurt us, but it's against him. 
See, we are often like the man in 2019 from India who wished to sue his parents for giving him birth. And you look at that and you say, are you out of your mind? But don't we do things worse than that? Because we don't want to sue God, we want to kill God. Satan has come to all of us in our lives and he has said this, what do you really want in life? And why don't you just be God? Because clearly God isn't doing a good job. And we've all failed. But not Jesus. Jesus in verse 4 answers, it is written. I love that. He is depending on God's word. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the, from the mouth of God. What Jesus is saying is that God is the creator. God is the provider. He is the one who keeps my existence. Not these other things. He is the one who keeps my existence. And it's interesting that Jesus here is quoting uh, Deuteronomy 8. And Deuteronomy 8 is always in the context of talking about Israel and talking about how Israel has failed. But yet, Jesus is the true and greater Israel. My friends, here's what we see in this first temptation. If we are to become sons of God, then Jesus must be the son of God. And he must do it God's way. If we are to be delivered from our sins, then Jesus must never fall into sin. And that's why we see that no one was ever truly tempted like Jesus was tempted. The second temptation, look at verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Where does he take Jesus? He takes him to the holy city and the temple. And as some scholars say, it would be in this position where uh, there would be these announcements that Jewish holidays had come. That it was a time for people to change their ways. So what is Satan tempting Jesus to do here? He's tempting Jesus to do things his way rather than the Father's way. He's tempting Jesus to take a shortcut. He's tempting Jesus to get his own glory separate from the Father. Notice here in verse 6. You might see a footnote there where where Satan says he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up. Notice that Satan is quoting scripture. Let us be reminded of this. Just because we can quote scripture does not mean we're a believer. Just because we might know theological answers does not mean we're a believer, let alone a mature believer. Satan knows more about theology than we do. He quoted God's word to God himself. But what's interesting is the way he does it. Because the way he does it is either this. It is either out of its own context or he waters it down. Or what Satan loves to do is he loves to get us to major on the minors. And he wants us to minor on the majors. 
Satan loves to take God's word out of context. What's interesting here in this scripture is that actually, if you would keep reading, you will see that that very psalm is going to talk about the demise of Satan himself. But he doesn't want you to see that. He wants you to believe this twisted temptation. See, he's tempting Jesus to take the reins of his own life. He says, if you want glory and if you want people to know who you are, then you must do it rather than waiting on God. Isn't this exactly what happened in the wilderness with Israel? Israel didn't want to trust God and and keep in step with his ways. They wanted to go back to Egypt or they wanted to take their lives into their own hands. But isn't this also what Adam and Eve wanted to do in the garden? Satan came to them and say, and he said this, if you take the fruit, you will be like God. But isn't that ironic? How were we made in the image of God? Adam and Eve were already like God in that sense. But Satan says, look, you can have it your way. Just bow down to me. What does it look like for us? We believe the temptation that we have to have sex now. We can't wait till marriage and God's plan. We can never say no to our own impulses. We must take it now. We must indulge in pornography now because we can't wait to find a spouse. We must drink alcohol now rather than trusting that God has allowed the law of the land to tell you to wait until you're 21. We say we need to take that money now because we can't trust God to provide for us. We need to have that affair now because we can't trust God to repair our marriage. We need to have that anger outburst now in our families because we can't trust that God's at work. We need to embrace worldly ways for the church now because we can't trust God and his ways. This is what we do. You see, the problem is not merely just the deed in itself. The problem is the offense that is towards God. Because we look at God and we say, we hate your ways. And we will be God. The problem is that our sin is against God. Notice how Jesus responds. Look at verse 7. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. Notice still there is only one God. All these other no-gods might pretend that they are gods. They might say that they're God. But there is only one God. And yes, even though there is a real personal devil, let us be reminded that he is merely a dog chained to a fence. He has his limitations. Jesus is quoting God's word back to him. And what he is saying is essentially this. It is entirely wrong to put God to the test. He has always had a perfect track record. No one has provided for his people like God has. God not only provides for his people, but he provides for them far beyond anyone can ever imagine. If God is withholding something from his people, then it is for their good. And if God is giving something to his people, then it is for their good in that season. God has never not provided for his needy people. Amen? He is God and he will never not be God. I love here that Jesus is not letting his circumstances tell him what's true. Is he hungry? Is he tired? 
does he know he needs to gather God's people in? Yes. But he's going to trust God's word in God's timing and in God's ways. What's amazing here is that as he, as it were, lands these lethal blows, these fatal punches to the dark Lord, we can begin to see him accruing our righteousness. My friends, what you need to do is you need to imagine that when you become a Christian, you are in unified with, uh, excuse me, in union with Christ. And you need to imagine you're standing with God because you have this Jesus. You need to imagine how he looks at you because when he looks at you, he looks at his son. That in Jesus, now you are the person who has perfectly trusted God. Now you are the person who kept looking at his promises even though the rest of the world turned away. Now you are the one who kept embracing his commandments even though the rest of the world broke them. And now you are the one who kept fellowship with God even when the rest of the world rejected him. What is true of Jesus becomes true of you. You have an amazing, abundant righteousness because he has done it for you. It's not yours. And it's way better than anything you could ever do. See, Jesus is not just doing this. He's doing this for his people that they might truly be his. It'd be the righteousness that we wear, be the victory we'd enjoy, be the honor and glory that we would enter into. Where Adam failed, where Israel failed, Jesus will succeed. And remember, thinking about the book of Chronicles. Jesus would be the greater Adam. Jesus would be the greater Israel. Jesus would be the greater David. He will bring us into that new creation. He will bring us into the better kingdom. He will truly defeat our enemies. That's what we have in Jesus Christ. Amen? But he must be tempted. And he must be truly tempted if we are to be truly saved. The third temptation, look at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Maybe it seems in this vision, in this moment, Satan would take him to a mountain and we need to remember what mountains were. In the ancient Near East, as some scholars say, mountains were, uh, they were symbols of the divine. Mountains were the place where the gods would have their domain. And no doubt as Satan is taking Jesus to this mountain, it would be as if he is showing Jesus his own domain. He's saying, look, I will give you all this. We're teaching on this uh, back in Jackson to some middle schoolers and I had this eighth grade boys Bible study and uh, it was always super intimidating because year after year we would always have some of my seminary professors kids who would be in there and uh, there was one seminary professor's kid who was there and I remember saying hey uh, can you go ask your dad about this it was great and I said I want you to ask your dad what does Satan mean here when he says I will give you these kingdoms is this just Is he just lying or is there something real to this? He came back with the answer. That was fascinating. That actually because of sin, God had allowed Satan to have rule over this kingdom. That is why he's often called the God of this world. 
He's saying, look, I can give you this. Because isn't that what you're after anyway? What is this temptation? This temptation was to receive the inheritance of God's children in our own way rather than God's way. This is exactly what Adam did. It's exactly what Israel did. Adam bought into this temptation in the garden when he tried to be like God, even though he was already like God. Israel took this temptation when they tried to make an idol like God with the golden calf, even though they were literally at the mountain with God. In other words, just take a shortcut. Make it a little easier on yourself and for the people, Jesus. We're often like Jacob in Genesis. We lie and cheat our way to try to get an inheritance. We're like David when we indulge in our lustful desires immediately when he took Bathsheba. We're like Peter and we deny Jesus because we want people to like us. Here's how we can do it today. We want to reach the lost, but we cave in on our sexual ethics and we deny the sanctity of life. We give in to sexual temptations because we should never tell ourselves no. We don't order the church God's ways because they seem outdated for our modern times. We try the newest trends rather than trusting God's plan for church growth. We try our own strategies for conversion rather than prayer. We turn to any other theories and strategies in the Bible for how people can actually change. We sacrifice biblical preaching for popular TED Talks. We talk very little about sin because we prefer the term brokenness instead. We proclaim a Jesus without taking up any crosses. We have to be liked right now. We have to indulge right now. We have to be rich right now. We have to have revenge right now. Let me remind ourselves again of this. We can never sit here and say, I wish so-and-so was here to to hear this because they really need to get their lives together. My friend, God is talking to you. He is speaking to me. We love to settle for easy Mac Christianity, don't we? Maybe that's one of the biggest problems of the universal church today is that we have settled for this, believing this lie. But see, if Jesus is truly going to be God's son, if he's going to do it God's way, he must go to the cross to get the kingdom. Notice that in Matthew 28 that Jesus comes to his disciples after he has died and risen. And he comes to them in Matthew 28 verse 18. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But how did he get it, my friends? He got it by going to the cross. Not by skipping over God's ways. He didn't take it now, but he trusted God's process. And he went through the cross. And it was because of that that he's able to save you and me. It's because he did not take the easy way, but he went to the cross to cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we would never be forsaken by God. Amen. He is the perfect one. He is the one who brings the kingdom. He is the one who defeats God's enemies. He is the one who ransoms God's people. He is the one who restores us to right worship. Jesus Christ is the one who is truly tempted, but he never sinned. Verse 11 says, then the devil left him. And we see in other places in the Gospels that it says that he would leave him until an opportune time. And you know when that opportune time is, right? 
In the Garden of Gethsemane, he would pray, Father, is there any other way? But he would still go. Why would he go? Because he loves you. He knows you're a sinner, but he's come to save sinners. He knows you are messed up, but he's come to save messed up people. He knows that you're not merely broken, but you are shattered, and he has come to save you. That's why he went. He is the greater Adam who brings new creation. He is the greater Israel who brings the true kingdom. He is the greater David who brings better victory. It is in Jesus Christ that we have sufficient salvation. It is because he beat the devil. And one day, my friends, one day he will show the fullness of his glory by how extensively he has beat him. The devil still roams around now and he tempts us still to sin, but he is, a, he is a fatally wounded devil. But ultimately, you will see, as Genesis 3.15 says, you will see on that great and glorious day that Jesus has definitively, there we go, stomped on the serpent. This is the divine warrior king. And he is the way of salvation. My friends, if you do not believe in Jesus... You have two choices. Stay as his enemy. And good luck because he's defeated the the greatest power uh, besides death itself, essentially. Or you can come to him. He is the true king. He is the true conqueror. Believe in him and you'll be saved. Let's pray. Father, we're asking that in your mercy, you would grant us faith. You would grant us trust in who Christ is. That we would not give in to that, that sly little firefly, as it were, who tempts us to give ourselves over to death. But rather we would look to Him who withstood. Him who is our Savior. And so that even when we fail, may we run to Him with our sins, knowing that in Him there is forgiveness. Father, we need that this morning. Because we are sinners. But we thank you that in Christ we have it. We ask all this in his great and glorious name. Amen.